It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnson, and Layla Atassi. I really have to articulate your name, Layla, because if I don't, the transcript service just turns it into gibberish. So Layla Atassi. <laughs> <laughs> I had a grandfather who pronounced it Leela for his whole life, so okay, <laughs> it's okay I guess. <laughs> All right, let's get going. How bad is the timing for the abrupt resignation of Steve Dakin or Dakin as Ohio school superintendent? And do we have a better idea of why he quit less than a month after starting the job he wanted so much? Lisa. Uh, We don't really have much more clarification on why Steve Dakin left his new post after only 11 days. But what he does is he leaves the the state of education in Ohio in the lurch, and it could be for months, depending on how they fill his position. There's been no superintendent of public instruction since September 2021 when Paolo de Maria retired. And in this time, we've been reeling with the after effects of the pandemic in school-age students. There were 53,000 and fewer students in the 2020-2021 school year. That was a 3% decrease from the year before. 25,000 pre-K to kindergarten kids were kept home an extra year, but they did enroll the next year, so they finally were counted again. 18,000 kids were homeschooled. 10,000 kids, whereabouts unknown. They might be possible high school dropouts. English language arts proficiency rates are down 8%. Math proficiency in Ohio is down 15%. So while this is all going on, there's no leader. Uh, The State Board of Education President Charlotte McGuire says she can't attend the June meeting, uh, you know, so maybe nothing will get done during that meeting. But their options are to start all over with a new search or they could consider the two finalists that they passed over for Dak. And um, one of them was Larry Hook, who only got four of eight, four, four of 18 board votes. He's a Springboro superintendent. He also had shared conservative concerns on history, racism, and sexism. sexism. And then Tom Hostler of Perrysburg, he's a little less political, but he got zero votes from the school board. Almost all of the votes went to Dakin. Well, Dakin, in running the search, did not use a national search firm to find somebody. And I, it would be interesting to see if they turn around now and do a real search. You know, when we talked about this yesterday, we put all the focus on Dakin, but we really should focus on the school board. I mean, it was entirely obvious to us that Dakin had an enormous conflict of interest that likely would cross into an investigation which we suspect is happening. There are very specific rules about this. The board knew that. They, they, and they went through all this effort, did this sleazy stuff to put him in, even though he led the search and it was completely wrong, and now we're in the lurch because of their incompetence or their intentional disregard of the law. So the school board is every bit as guilty as Dakin is for leaving the students in the lurch. These numbers are terrible. I mean... Th- you know, the reading is dropping. The math is dropping. Kids aren't showing up at school. We need somebody that's really focused on education right now to lead us forward. Paola De Maria was a great superintendent. If you ever talked to him, that guy was 100% education. And now we're awash in lunatics that want to talk about how we teach about race in schools. 
And the Ohio Ethics Commission Executive Director Paul Nick said that they used state law plus a 1987 legal opinion on a local school board case that says public officials must wait one year after resigning before accepting compensation and benefits from the board they previously served on. So Dakin obviously didn't fall into that. He re- he resigned one day and became a candidate the next. So, And Nick says he says he cannot comment on an investigation, if any, but I believe there is one ongoing. You know what's interesting about that, though? That rule is to avoid the appearance of a conflict, to to remove any thought that you could be engineering something for your enrichment. In this case, it wasn't the appearance. He was. I mean, he ran the whole application process. Then at the 11th hour on deadline, he resigns, knowing everything to know about his competitors and puts together an application to make himself look the best. There's, this isn't even about the appearance of a conflict. This is 100% a conflict, which I want to point out, Laura Hancock, our statehouse reporter, this is her baby. She wrote this. She discovered it. She wrote it multiple times. Everything anybody knows about this case is because of the dogged reporting of Laura Hancock. So you can read her stuff on cleveland.com, search for her name, and the stories are all there. It's today in Ohio. How far would women in Ohio have to travel on average, and how much would that travel cost if they chose to have an abortion in a world where Roe v. Wade has been invalidated by the U.S. Supreme Court and abortion is made illegal in Ohio? Laura, this is not going to be good for people who are of lesser means. No, absolutely not. This is based on research by Ohio State University and the University of Cincinnati. And basically, Ohio women would have to travel up to 339 miles and spend about $400 just on their car and gas travel if the state outlaws abortion. And this is working from the center of every county and looking at where abortions are available, both surgical and medication abortions. And that's in Pittsburgh, Detroit, Ann Arbor, Buffalo, Champaign, Illinois, Chicago, Charlottesville, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, and Baltimore. So obviously, if you're on the east side of the state, you're going to go east if you're going to go south. Um, And access isn't guaranteed in all of these cities right now. In in Michigan and Pennsylvania, the future of abortion is an open question. And in some of them, you do have the same issue as you do in Ohio, where you have to wait 24 hours in between appointments. So you would definitely have to spend money on a hotel room. A lot of people would have to spend money on childcare to do this. It would just make abortion a very expensive proposition. Well, Laura, you and I are going to help spark a discussion about making it legal in Ohio if the legislature invalidates it. We're doing a special podcast today with a live audience where we're going to seek to come to some kind of consensus on what a constitutional amendment in Ohio might say if it legalized abortion. I really hope people participate in good faith. We asked anti-abortion folks not to participate and people that are that don't believe there should be any regulations whatsoever to sit this one out. We're looking for people who are struggling with it. You nervous about this one? I am a little nervous about it. I I told you yesterday, I was like, I'm not like an abortion expert. I haven't studied the issue. I'm coming at this from a, a, you know, a woman who lives in the modern world. And I think that's how most people think of this. You know, this is a gut issue. I don't, I think that people feel very passionately about it, so I I feel like we're going to have some raised passion, although I do believe that everybody is coming at this with a very reasonable, thoughtful approach, and and we're trying to come to a consensus. What they really said in their emails asking to participate is they want to have a civil conversation 
that leaves the politics and the screaming out that that this is an issue of our age that requires civility and discussion to come to a consensus and they're they're hoping this happens i'm just worried that there are some people that are participating in bad faith but we do have a mute button so we can move on <laughs> uh it'll be interesting i've never done this before with this software so i'm a little bit nervous about glitches but we'll see you're listening to today in ohio We've been talking in depth about the Cuyahoga County Jail since 2018, and now we've had a tour. What did reporter Caitlin Durbin find when she was giving a, given a tour of both the aging jail and the courthouse, which also needs rehabilitation or replacement? Layla. Yeah, Caitlin fought for months to get a firsthand look at, at the facility, and that finally happened in, in the recent weeks here. Jail officials spent a lot of time showing off the new $3.2 million central booking facility, which is part of uh, part of which is expected to open at the end of the month and, and start reducing the, the jail population. But jail administrator Rhonda Gibson said even that space is still too small for their needs, and she's hoping for a different layout in a new facility that she hopes they will eventually build. We know that that's been really locked in a stalemate over where that facility will go, how much it will cost, or whether they're going to end up renovating the current facility. It's really a quagmire. But Caitlin also saw the old kitchen space that was converted to bunks to the tune of a few million dollars and an overhauled video visitation area. But much of the jail was still really in bad shape, underscoring that need for a new facility or this major overhaul to the current one. Control centers where officers monitor staff, visitor and inmate movements appear very outdated with old, largely unused equipment, grainy security footage, temperatures fluctuate throughout this facility, and there's almost no natural light other than two small slits and in individual cells along the perimeter of the building. A few housing units don't have any natural light at all and couldn't be even retrofitted with windows, which means means that they will always be out of compliance with the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections standards that classify it as important to provide natural light in housing units and dorms. Um, Caitlin also, she, she wasn't allowed to see the inside of the solitary confinement areas, which I'm sure would have been very eye-opening and, uh, you know, kind of makes me wonder why they wouldn't show that part. They said that they were being occupied or there were some reasons why they weren't showing those. One of four recreation areas in, in the jail with, with over 1,700 inmates is a small windowless concrete room with a single basketball hoop. Its net was connected by just a few strings. Officials say that they can only escort 10 people there at a time. That was another one of her observations. And Gibson pointed to numerous design problems with the jail that she says would make renovating the existing structure a total loser of an idea. So, for example, she says the layout of the towers makes it very difficult to respond to an emergency, getting people in and out of those elevators, which Caitlin experienced firsthand with just the media kind of moving up and down the elevators. And she said there's no way to reorganize the jail to improve efficiency is is what gibson said a couple things um one when i was in leadership cleveland we had a tour of the jail and so mm -hmm. that was when they were promoting it and putting their best face on it so we saw you know shiny tables and it was all clean yeah, kind of right i've had a tour too and they try to shine it up they try right but where <laughs> they, they put the lipstick on the pig <laughs> but they don't want this jail anymore so i'm wondering if when caitlin took the tour they wonder, put the yeah, bad face on it 
well, what's the bad face? <laughs> the the dirty table? I don't know. It, it's really hard to make the jail look that good, right? Yeah. <laughs> Can I... I, I was I was really glad to see Caitlin's story on this, and I've never been inside the jail, so I'm getting it all from her. But the the natural light, I don't think you can say enough about the importance of the letting these inmates be active, see the sunshine. I mean, we've had so many deaths in the jail from overdoses and suicides and fights, and you just have to think that if they're allowed to have more activity, if they're not locked in their cells all the time, like obviously that's better for them and the issue about the the elevators i had no idea how much time people are spending just going up and down the elevator and going across a bridge and then going in another elevator and it's just like this just seems ridiculous mm-hmm. although yeah, i do story say that for mentioned 45 in years story. the jail worked right i mean for 45 years we didn't have deaths in, you know in in a bunch of ways and and people didn't really say the jail was a problem for all those years. And then in 2018, all the people died. Armin Budas tried to make money on the jail. It was a disaster. And now the sentiment has gone completely the opposite. This is terrible. This is terrible. We must replace it. Yeah, it's old It's old technology. It's in, And exactly what you said about sunlight and things. And in modern jail, you would do that. But, you know, is there middle ground? That's why they want to do this study, to look at it. Is there some way to make use of it? But, you know, when you have people giving a tour saying we got to get rid of it, I can't make it work. They made it work for more than four decades, right? Yeah, Yeah. that's that's a specious argument. (laughs) I I agree that they made it work, but I think we know a lot more about mental health and the best way to treat people than they did 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And they're dealing with lower staffing, too. Right. It's hard to hire people. And a modern jail. Interestingly, you know, I also wanted to point that Caitlin, Caitlin observed, she, she went to tour the Justice Center, the rest of the Justice Center, too. And, and I found it interesting what she had to say about uh, the prosecutor's offices and how crowded they were. And they had the desks that were piled into the hallways of the eighth floor, how narrow the walkways were because of how how crowded everything was. And um, and also hilarious was her first impressions of the 1970s decor of the courtroom. How about the coke cockroach that crawled across the floor that Dave Packowitz <laughs> took a picture of? Um, but I, it is funny because the prosecutor doesn't want to move. They're like, "It's fine, it's fine. We don't we don't need more space." So you're well, right, Chris. You know what? Each one has their own um, take on what they need and how bad the it pro- is. The prosecutor said it's fine after earlier telling Caitlin that it wasn't fine. So I don't know. It all depends on you know. How Michael Malley's, you know, where he's coming from on that particular day and <laughs> what well, fight he's fighting. Last question. You, you talked to Caitlin a lot and she wrote her story and she did it as a professional. But what, what did she say when she finished? What was when she called you up and said, man, I went through her there. What was her reaction? That it's a complete pit that is horrible to be in or what? You know what? I mean, I think Caitlin was um, I don't want to speak for her. I mean, she she was sort of like, you know, it's jail isn't supposed to be pleasant, but she understood, obviously, the arguments that they're making about why this facility doesn't work. I mean, the the logistics of getting up and down the elevator. She explained all that stuff in her story. I think I think she her story speaks for itself. And, um, you know, yeah, I certainly don't want to don't want to speak for for all of that. (laughs) Caitlin hates when I speak for her on this podcast. (laughs) But you're her editor, so you speak for her all the time, especially when you're calling to give me hell. It's Today in Ohio.
What percentage of the bridges in Ohio were built more than 30 years ago, and what percentage of them are in poor condition? Lisa, we did the first story about the bridge because of the Memphis Road Bridge being closed very quickly, and people could not get enough of it. And so we've now done four stories on the condition <laughs> of bridges. These are some of our most popular stories. I guess people are nervous about driving across bridges that could collapse under them. So our latest story looks at the age of them across the state. What do we find? Yeah, I have to say, and I said this in an earlier podcast, the uh, Brainerd Road Bridge over 271 makes me nervous when I have to stop on it because it has this weird, like, quiver to it. But anyway, half of state bridges in Ohio predate 1990. And of that group, 2,400 of them are in poor condition. So the, the article took a look through the decades to see, you know, bridge construction in Ohio through the years. Um, in the 1930s, it was the first time the state hit four digits. They built over, over 2,100 bridges, 25% of them in the year 1930 alone. That was the first big spike in bridge construction. Then we saw another big one uh, in the 50s when the Cleveland population peaked. There were about 35,000 there are 3,574 of those bridges built in the 50s that are still standing. We had another huge surge in the 1990s. That actually is the number one decade with the most bridges built. And there are 7,160 bridges still in commission from the 1990s. And since 2000, we've built about 5,864 bridges. There are some bridges, about 1,900 of them, the ODOT has no data on them at all, so they've labeled them as built in 1900 or earlier. Most of the bridges from 19... The, the decade with the most bridges in poor condition is the 1930s. There are 99 of them in poor condition. 1990, there are 30 bridges from then that are in poor condition. Yeah, I... I I, I think of a bridge as permanent, don't you? I mean, don't you think that bridges, once you build them, if you take care of them, they should be around a long time? But it's kind of frightening that these are all in such aged and not good conditions. Yeah, and, you know, a, a lot of people don't realize that a bridge can just be like a little thing over a culvert. I mean, it doesn't have to be a big span over a valley or a river or a highway. So, you know, the the description of what a bridge is includes like small overpasses, culvert overpasses and that kind of thing. But, yeah, kind of scary. But there are 35 years that there were no poor bridges built, and that includes uh, 2008 and later, and actually some pre-20th century spans have no poor bridges, but they've undergone major renovations in the last, you know, few decades. So, but yeah, it, it's uh, kind of scary. And we, you know, we drive over bridges every day, probably at least two or three when we go out on a normal errand. So yeah, kind of scary. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a good story. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How does Ohio compare to the nation in terms of increasing numbers of school students seeking mental health treatment during the pandemic? Laura, the study came out nationally last week that showed what I think every parent knows. Kids are acting up big time during the pandemic. What's going on in Ohio? Yeah, we're pretty much on par with what the Institute of Education Science has found all over the country that found about 70% of public schools nationally have seen a rise in the number of students seeking mental health services. And that's since the beginning of the pandemic two years ago. Only 56% of those schools, though, say they can actually effectively provide the mental health services to all students in need. They just don't have the personnel to be able to do it. 830 schools, elementary through grade 12, were 
surveyed in April, and they broke out data for 12 Midwest states as a group, not Ohio individually, but in the Midwest, they found out 87% of schools have encouraged staff to address students' mental health and well-being. 44% have hired new staff to focus on mental health. 20% have added student classes on emotional health. They do intervention. And staff seeking mental health services is actually up 31% too. Uh, Julie Washington talked to folks from the uh, Education Association and the School Boards Association. They said, basically, it's, it's definitely happening in here. Students and staff alike like are having a mental health crisis. That was from Eric Merkel. He's the central office school psychologist with the Akron Public Schools. So unfortunately, we are not bucking this trend. Does any of this surprise you or Layla as mothers of children in school during the pandemic? No. I mean, this is a huge gamut of, of issues that kids could be facing depression anxiety um the trauma of, of seeing you know your parents working from home i don't know i mean it's just kids are seeing things that and being aware of things they probably never had to before and then you add in things like uh the social turmoil the talk about the school shootings I, and obviously the survey was before evaldi but it, it's a tough time to be a kid mm-hmm yeah, we've we've talked about we're working on a long term story about what the ramifications might be for for kids who grow up today as adults. A lot of interest in that from our text account. A lot of people want to talk about that. I just was kind of surprised that 70 percent need the services. That's a well, gigantic percentage of the kids. And the school guidance counselors, I mean, I think ours, there's usually one per building in our district and they've been great but a lot of times they they've had to hire outside help right for this because not all guidance counselors are are trained in mental health services they're more there for school and academic guidances but kids since before the pandemic were learning more about mindfulness and and deep breathing and and i feel like there's been this focus on social emotional health that probably will grow after this because we're just seeing kids just be so torn up about things okay you're listening to today in ohio What's behind Cleveland's creation of a special council to focus on black women and girls? Layla, what is the goal here? Well, the intention of this Commission on Black Women and Girls is to study and propose solutions to the poor health, education, and economic outcomes that are faced by so many of the city's residents. Mayor Justin Bibb set forth this idea along with Councilwoman Deborah Gray and Stephanie House, who are Council's two black women members. In 2020, a Bloomberg City Lab report ranked Cleveland dead last for overall outcomes for black women among U.S. cities with 100,000 or more residents. Black women comprise nearly 28% of Cleveland's population. So this is seems it's it's time for some kind of deep thinking around this issue. The commission would work to to really understand systemic discrimination, abuse and harassment at work and healthcare and at school and other sectors in society that cause those outcomes to be worse. And then they would help develop policy around that. So they would meet monthly and issue reports and progress. And then their membership is required to include folks from a cross section of government, public service, the medical field, grassroots organizations, social service fields, and others. And there will even be two college or technical school students and two CMSD students on the commission between 11 and 17 years old. So there will be that youth representation that is so important. 
They'll advise the mayor on quality of life issues that matter to women and girls. They'll hold public hearings and conduct research. They'll recommend policies or legislation that promote equity. They could solicit grants that further the commission's mission. So very broad spectrum of of uh, what their work entails. I got to say that so far, the Justin Bibb as mayor and Blaine Griffin as council president era has has been kind of smart. You know, you haven't seen a whole lot of mistakes and they keep coming up with interesting approaches to issues in the city. Yeah. Yeah. This is particularly thoughtful. And and uh, uh, I'm very, very eager to see how how you know what what their early reports find and and, uh, you know, the fact that they'll be meeting monthly, it'll be very interesting. I, I hope that these are public meetings. It'd be great for Courtney Astolfi to track this. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Okay, Lisa, how many massage therapists have now filed suit against New Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson? What does the latest say? Yeah, we're up to two dozen now. A 24th lawsuit was filed in Houston last excuse me, last week by a 24th massage therapist against uh, Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson. Uh, The attorney for all of these women, it's the same attorney, Tony Busby, he says that the allegations of sexual misconduct in this latest case are strikingly similar to the other victims. He also goes on to say that these women are true heroes for stepping forward. Watson's attorney, Rusty Harden, may have made a slight misstep. He, in a Houston radio interview recently, he referenced happy endings and I hope I don't have to explain this on a podcast I hope people know what that is you know look it up if you don't know but he said if a happy ending happened it's not a crime and he also said doing or saying something that makes one uncomfortable is not a crime either and pointed out that two jury grand juries have found that come to that same conclusion and he said when he was talking about the happy endings he was speaking hypothetically but Busby immediately jumped in that statement and he's going to use that statement against Harden as these cases go forward he says Harden just lost his case by saying that yeah, it just it seems like this just keeps getting worse and worse for the Browns. I mean, the the season's approaching. They don't know how long he's going to be suspended, but the cases just keep increasing. People try to make a big deal out of the fact one lawyer's representing all the women, but if you were going to come forth to to accuse him, wouldn't you go to the attorney who's already building the cases because he has all the information? I don't know. Did she come to him or did he go to her? I mean, we don't really know. So, and good, from what I know point. of Tony Busby, anyway. But anyway, uh, NFL commissioner, yeah, that's right. yeah, NFL commissioner Roger Goodell says the investigation against Watson is wrapping up. They'll soon turn it over to their disciplinary officer Sue Robinson. There's no timetable for an announcement on whether Deshaun Watson will be suspended or not, but they're thinking it'll probably happen this month or next month. But most assuredly before the NFL season starts in the fall. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, you're going to wrap us up. Is the Cuyahoga County Council going to follow through on its plan to have the controversial Dave Wondolowski take a seat on the port board without doing their duty to vote on it? What is the latest on what is clearly a very cowardly act by the council? It appears they are going to let him slide right into that seat without an official vote. Caitlin Durbin reports that Wondolowski on Monday finally made good on his promise to resign from his seat on the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections. 
listeners will probably remember that when Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish nominated him for appointment to the Port Authority, we learned that the Port Board's bylaws don't allow one of its members to simultaneously hold a seat on another board. In Wondolowski's case, he was already sitting on the Board of Elections, so that's incompatible with his new appointment, and he decided he'd rather serve on the Port Board. He told County Council he'd resign from the Board of Elections if they'd give him that Port Authority job, so... Meanwhile, lots of drama ensued because county council members accused Budish of lying to them when he assured them that there were no conflicts of interest with Wondolowski's nomination when it seemed quite apparent that uh, by then Budish was fully aware that Wondolowski couldn't serve on both boards at once and would have to choose. So anyway, council normally vets and votes to to confirm each of Budish's picks during public hearings, but instead... Council President Purnell Jones is is letting his colleagues off the hook. He decided he's not going to call the roll on his colleagues. He's just going to let their deadline lapse on the nomination, basically tacitly confirming it. So Wondolowski's appointment automatically becomes effective after 60 days, and that will be this Saturday. So Wondolowski had not given written notice of his resignation to the Board of Elections or the Ohio Secretary of State's office yet. He just sort of kind of verbally told his colleagues at the Board of Elections that this is it or, you know, let them know informally, have some way. And uh, you know that Caitlin Durbin is going to be looking for that written notice. (laughs) She is on it, man. (laughs) Who wrote this charter anyway? Why is the default, if they don't vote, that he takes office? Why wouldn't the default be, if they don't confirm, he doesn't get the job? I don't know. I don't know. It's like the wimpiest way. Like, what? What? how could you be more cowardly? Like, yeah, the default should be if you don't get in, if they don't vote you in. <laughs> if there is no vote, you don't get in. Yeah, I, I, don't you know, think, it's, I don't think it works this way elsewhere. I mean, this is a very strange part of our charter and it's just how did they write that did they foresee that hey we got to give the council some cover to be cowards let's make it automatic if they (sighs) don't vote you know there are some members of council though who want to vote for him and they want to call the roll well so think about it like right if the governor doesn't uh like sign a bill within 10 days doesn't it just take effect anyway yeah, but remember the school board nominations? The, the, if the legislature didn't take up the school board nominations, they weren't getting in. Um, and look, Layla, if that's true, why don't they just make the motion? They have Robert's Rules of Order. They don't need they the do. president to do it. They could just say, they should. hey, I, I'm, you know, I... They should call the question on this. Yeah, they can do it around Purnell if they want to do that. That would do be you interesting. you hear that, Marty Sweeney? Do you hear that? Uh, it, <laughs> Call look, it. It would put people on the record as whether they support this guy who a lot of community groups don't support because of his past behavior. Right. Interesting. It's Today in Ohio. That's it for a Tuesday. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about some more news. Courtney Astolfi will be here to talk about some city policy. <laughs> <laughs>